to think our future Channing Tatums could be conceived to this podcast. In honor of Hail Caesar, <laughs> cast a famous Hollywood person to play a famous Hollywood person of the past in a comedy. What comedy? I- <laughs> I'm sorry, go. <laughs> Way to read the rules, Patches. Uh, I'm Katie Christian. I'm going with Emma Stone as Lauren McCall, right? Uh, it's me, Dave with the Seven. I'm going to say Patrick Warburton as a late-in-life Rock Hudson, because who doesn't love an AIDS comedy? Oh, okay. That gets me off the hook. I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with uh, Michael Fassbender as John Ford. Now, hold on here, because I'm envisioning the Five Came Back universe, mm-hmm. where Michael <laughs> Fassbender starts as John Ford, but he teams up with Capra Houston. Stevens and Wilder. Listen, it's gonna be let amazing. me tell you, I've, I've imagined the Five Came Back movie in my head, and it is most definitely one film and not five. Oh, it's definitely one film, but it has a lead up of five films. It's the no, Avengers. No, no, no. John Ford would never stand for this. Uh, I'm David Ehrlich, and I'm going to go with January Jones as Eva Marie Saint. Bonus, Eva Marie Saint is still alive, so she could, uh, if they hurry, even watch the movie. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's It's hot. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 105 for Tuesday, February 2nd, 2016. Guess what? On this day in 1653, a little city called New Amsterdam was founded. Today we call it New York City. Uh, Before we get started, uh, David and Patches are back from Sundance. We're all uh, in our regular homes, but not seeing each other. And we have a bunch of reviews that we saved for when David and Patches got back, because uh, David is uh, centrally involved in them, I believe. Uh, Yeah, we have four. Wow. Oh my God! Uh, and they all bring. Maybe me... we should save some for the next week. No, we still want people no, to submit no, new reviews yeah, next no. week. These yeah, are... and also Benghazi, it's fading fast. That's we gotta... true. No one's talking about that. Uh, this is true. So, ahem, allow me. The first <laughs> from Opie Land. David, what are you doing to your microphone? I was just moving it to get it in a per- proper position for this shining moment. Okay. Picture it in your mind. <laughs> Midway through the Friday review of 13 Hours, I stopped the podcast. Couldn't stand your guest reviewer. (laughs) I understand most, if not all, of the crew leans left, but your guest was insane. He had his review in hand before he saw the flick, it seemed. After I saw the movie, I returned to the episode. I was proud of how the team handled said guest, especially David, who I expect to lean the guest's point of views. I'm not entirely sure what you mean by that, Opie Land, but if you I mean think he that, thinks you're a dirty liberal. I am a dirty liberal. Yes, this is true. It's no secret. I am more right-leaning, and Hollywood isn't. I know this and still say open to all art. I love movies and conversations. You guys make a great team. Glad I didn't unsubscribe. <laughs> we are glad, too. And yeah. why can't all people who lean to the right be this reasoned I yeah know, it's, it's uh, wonderful are all people who lean to, why can't anyone who disagrees with other people's politics that's true that's true there that? are crazy left i think they're called bernie bros now wow oh, oh dang. making it um, making it political topical <laughs> next <laughs> from indie seven stolo still the best movie podcast but dot 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 please uh-huh. never unleash an unhinged jordan hoffman on us again <laughs> I think your review of 13 Hours got me more frustrated than any episode in your dual podcast history. Wow. Having to listen to him so wildly misinterpret that movie. Plus, Jordan should know he only made me appreciate the movie even more than I did before in that defensive sort of way you can get when someone goes off on something you enjoyed. 
I think there was a really interesting conversation to have about this film. Instead, we got a cutting-off shouting match. Jordan has been enjoyable in the past, unbearable on this episode. You're all great. I kind of liked having Jordan as a foil in that episode. <laughs> yes, I thought I, I, well, had it, well, instead of uniting our listeners and wanting Joanna back, we've united yes. them against a common enemy. <laughs> <That's great. laughs> uh, Jordan was a wonderful foil. He performed his role admirably. Yeah, that's the uh, reason I wanted him on the yeah, podcast. It, it, it made perfect. for great. Made for great radio. Please tell me I get to read Doc Zool's. Please stop fighting. Go, no, go for that. Okay. Ahem. Go for it. I'm having weird flashbacks to my childhood. Please let me explain. Before my parents separated, <laughs> as a child of age eight, I seem to recall them arguing constantly about little things, insane things. On the one hand, I was fascinated about the differences in opinion. I found myself listening intently and becoming emotionally invested. I would root for my mom at times, then for my dad at different times. But on the other hand, I just couldn't take it. The name-calling, the talking all together and all at once, meanwhile increasing in brutality as well in volume. But I couldn't just yell at them to stop it and to shut it up. I wanted to shout, just buy both the Cheetos and the ice cream. It doesn't matter. I'll eat them both at the same time. I felt helpless. Such is the feeling I get when listening to this podcast. Only, it's really, really weird, since I seem... To identify my dad and Matt and my mom and David. Thankfully, Katie and Dave are there to be like my older siblings if I had any. And sometimes my favorite auntie Joanna would come visit to break up the fight with calmness, order, and reason. TLDR, this podcast leaves me mesmerized and helpless. Five stars. I guess our marriage is not going to work out in the end, David. (laughs) I'm actually glad to know that on episodes when I feel like we fought too much, I know that the listeners will let us know when we fight too much. So this is encouraging. Just the right amount of fighting. And despite all these wonderful reviews, I think we're below the Billions podcast, Showtime's official Billions podcast. That's really disappointing to me. We really got to pump this one up. That many people watch Billions, huh? I know. I thought we had a bigger audience than Billions, but not. So we got to get your friends on. Come on, everybody. If you're not watching Billions, let us know and tell us why we're better than Billions. I'm not watching it. I don't know. Maybe we aren't. We probably It could be a great show. I I can't say I'm not watching it either. There are worse things I could do than go with a boy or two. Even though the neighborhood thinks I'm trashy and no good, I suppose it could be true. But there are worse things I could do I could flirt With all the guys Smile at them Somehow we keep talking about live TV musicals because they keep happening and then every time everyone thinks they're sick of them they get really into them again which happened to me when I thought I wasn't going to watch Grease Live and then kept uh, turning off my dvr version of Armageddon to watch Grease Live and by the end of it I was totally sucked in You had to go uh, Grease Lightning I, had to, I went grease lightning and avoided that asteroid. Um, I thought this was kind of charming, despite being kind of dumb in all of the way that these awkward live musicals have been, with like weird audio cues and silences and people kind of clomping across the stage like high school theater. Um, the director, Tommy Kale, who has made or directed Hamilton, like I think he's getting a ton of credit for it, but it really did look not like all of these regular TV musicals. I don't know. I'm a musical person as it is. But I'm kind of rooting for this mini genre to stick around now. Uh, is it driving you guys crazy? I haven't seen any of the other ones. I did not see The really? Wiz or Peter Pan. No. Or This is my first one, so I'm curious if 
this wow. like how this stacks up. Katie, so since you, watched you didn't them all. know how good you had it last night. No, yeah, I really saw didn't. people saying that it was a real step up in the production value department, which I mean, I was really kind of in awe of the production uh, yes. shot over maybe eight sound stages on I think some it's lot. Three sound stages. Well, yeah, but it they... looked like a lot because they're you know carting people back and forth during commercial breaks. They have tons of cameras going at once. A few like steady cams, but during one big dance number in the school gym, they had you know it's taking place during a kind of American bandstand. Uh, television program and they had you know their their own cameras disguised as big clunky 19 uh when does this take place 70s 60s i forget 59 59 (laughs) 70s come on totally forgot uh yeah you know big old school cameras and that's really cool and it's just like the sweeping motions and you never really catch a camera in your line of sight and i just i was in awe of the choreography i think i made a joke during the show that i'm like i'm i'm more impressed by greece lives theatrical camera work than i am anything in the revenant sorry well it's certainly <laughs> anything in birdman which seems like a closer yeah analog. any any uh, alejandro in a long shot is, is uh, less inspiring listen yeah greece is why anyone would put on a production of greece anywhere in the world is beyond me well the, re- the, the reason terrible... is that it feels automatically like a school <laughs> like your high school musical you're watching people you know try and do this and not make fools of themselves what a terrible musical however uh and that was my main sort of deterrent towards watching i was pretty blown away by the direction uh in this episode and just the the ambition of it uh Mm -hmm. how relentlessly clever it was i mean it didn't at any point feel like they were coasting and it wasn't just a, a, a multitude of things it wasn't just like the maximalism of the experience where they were just like, oh, we can now do this trick and now we can cut to the black and white camera and now we can have this effect. It all felt like it was coherent and sort of part of this unified vision and they all these choices were actually making the show more engaging, even though the first scene I tuned into was uh, when they were in the diner and um, and the, there was like the flatness to not having any ambient sounds from the audiences. It's like, yeah. in, in the span of a single shot, I'm like, oh, that's why they invented the laugh track. Yeah, it's so <laughs> well, weird. And I kept wanting there to be a laugh track just to break it up a little bit. It would yeah. it would not have been out of place. And uh, Patches, that's the thing with the with the NBC musicals is none of them have had an audience at all. Like the audience was incorporated into Grease Live in various points. But in the NBC ones, you get to the end of this like showstopper number and then it's dead silence. It's really weird. Why do that? Like, what's the point? I guess they, you can't I mean, integrate them properly, or you can't pull off the whole show on a stage if you have bleachers of people sitting around. Yeah, which is why Grease Live kind of incorporated them into the set, which is kind of yeah, very awkward because you've got people in, like, you know, random T-shirts, like, sitting in the background trying not to look at the camera. But oh, I thought it was it super kind of clever. Fit- they had this, like, Greek chorus idea, this Grease chorus sort <laughs> of running around everywhere, and they always found new ways to use them. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it really makes sense for this kind of musical. The it's camera blocking they... was like, sorry, you were saying? Oh, well, it's, it's hard to imagine how it would work in The Sound of Music, but it definitely worked for Greece. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the one thing that makes Greece a decent choice is that it, its story uh, and its energy allows for this kind of dynamic direction. Uh, and uh, the, the camera choreography and how they were negotiating all these different cameras and all these set changes, I mean, it was really all of the same wonder at, at the technical aspects of Birdman and how they did all of this, this was like doing Birdman live. I mean, I really don't see much of the difference. I think that this was uh, astronomically more impressive. And uh, I think the acting in Birdman had an edge on Grease Live in many ways. This cases. is true. Uh, I No one is giving any points for the acting here, except for Vanessa Hudgens, who was performing under very difficult circumstances, which added a certain 
you know, an interesting morbid element to it. Her father had died uh, earlier that day, or the night before, rather, and then she had to perform this thing live. That was actually the first I heard that they were doing the show to begin with. Um, really? And, yeah. And, uh, Grease live star. <laughs> Vanessa Hudgens, father uh, dead. Wait, Grease live? They're doing yeah. Grease live? More or less. And I was like, what show are you doing tonight? I don't know. Cancel it. And then, <laughs> and then I was like, oh, wait, I can't. Um, but she, whatever song that is that she sings about the abortion, there are worse things I could for, do. Right. But like they can't say Schmushmortion. It's like the musical version of Schmushmortion. Oh, not having the baby. Uh, she killed well, it. Well, yeah, it's, 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 well, it's a, no, it's a false alarm. Oh, no, sorry. No, but. You said she killed it. I thought she meant the baby. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, okay, I'm sorry. That derailed. <laughs> derailed. All those okay. right leaning subscribers just. <laughs> no, just me there giggling at abortion. Oh, God. Uh, no, she was she was amazing. She was, uh, but she was great. You know, even if you why hadn't known she, about her why personal isn't she tragedy. in everything? What the hell happened? Why? Yeah, don't wish. You know, <laughs> she's not that. You great still got time for that to happen. Yeah, <laughs> she's a good singer. She no, but she was wonderful in Spring Breakers. I've never seen the High School Musicals, but I assume that they're High School Musicals. And she's you watch videos of her in Rent from a live staging they did in L.A. a few years. Ago. I, I don't. You'll, I don't be need to, to do that. But she is. Uh, she's great. I don't know. I, I would see her in more things. Although I. You know, maybe as an actress, we're not singing. I don't know. I, I did not see Gimme Shelter. Uh, but certainly I, there are uh, enough musicals going around right now where she can make a, a fine career. I thought Carly Rae Jepsen was good, which I never expected to say. She had to She's deal with that singer. terrible like song they wrote for her. Yeah, that yeah, song was really out of place because it felt <laughs> yeah. like a 90s Broadway yeah. tune yeah. more than something that was integrating <laughs> seamlessly into Greece. It was very a very strange show, but, you know, I, I'm kind of... <laughs> the malaise of everything else on network television. Uh, it's something new, you're right? Uh, well, actually, yeah. you know, I was thinking, too, earlier in the day, I had watched Louis C.K.'s uh, surprise television show. Did you guys get to see this? With Steve Buscemi? No, I didn't see uh, it. I haven't seen yes, it yet. It's no. called Horace and Pete. It is not a, a sitcom. It is not really anything like Louis. Um, it's basically a filmed play. Uh, it's it's like Eugene O'Neill. It's set in a bar and complete realism, drama, everything that could go it's wrong like does Lucky go wrong. It's like Lucky Louie without the sitcom trappings. Yeah, no, it, it's exactly that. Uh, and I couldn't help but think about that during Grease Lightning, or <laughs> Grease Lightning, uh, <laughs> Grease Live, because of how dynamic this is, taking kind of an old school format, this live musical television performance, and renewing it with all the energy of modern uh, camera work. And then you have Louie, who seems to be stepping backwards on purpose. Like, I'm not really sure why he did this other than, well, he wrote a play that he's not going to put up in New York or he wants more people to see it and he's filming it in the simplest way possible. And within a few days, he must have cut this together because you hear the ruffling of microphones, the camera work is really sloppy, um, like really slapdash well, and, and obviously shot to, with like four or five cameras. But and, what? And there are references within it to things that happened. Like last yeah, week. there's Trump jokes in it about Trump jump uh, dropping out of the debate and everything. And so it's huh. an interesting experiment. But it feels like a rough draft. Like this is live television as something that you know maybe doesn't have a whole lot of thought put into it. But he can do it and th film it in a few takes and then get it up. It's like a play. Um, and I find that really interesting. Like what? what Greece is trying to do to television entertainment by taking what it does from Broadway, but taking from what it does live uh, performance, televised performance. I don't know. There's something there. 
that I haven't put. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I think I think I can connect the dots yeah. for you, which is like, what Grease Live was like the Fox version of the live musical, which is like so, like infused with like a Glee sort of like feel, in the sense that what made like the first you know season of Glee work, which is like sort of like that high school musical like rush, mm-hmm. and then it managed to do that and then produce these amazing ratings like according to what i'm looking at now from tv by the numbers like the whiz live did like at 3.4 which is going to be around like 10 million people and greece live did a 4.3 which is 12.18 million people so it's not just like a little bit more successful it's like the new crazy formula so they basically like figured out a way and especially with like the louis ck thing it's like if polish costs money, but you don't need it, and you could still get a four three on a Sunday night. Then why put any polish into but it? But Greece, like, but Greece had polish. Like that was what was incredible about it. Like the NBC ones have been really awkward and stagey, but Greece put the effort into making it look special, which is what attracted everybody. Yeah, to it. I would watch another one of these things on Fox. I would not watch another one of these things on NBC. Well, I think NBC yeah, the, guess, the the gauntlet's been thrown now, so who knows what? Although they have, NBC's you know. next one is Hairspray, which is probably yes. going to ring a little too close to Grease. I was thinking about I don't it last know. night. Like, I think Hair, Hairspray is a better musical than Grease. I think it's got more interesting stuff they can do with it. I'm really excited about it, actually. I mean, I think if, if you bring this to people and you start making it more like reality based, then you're going to start getting close to their reality TV. Thing. If it's not there already for some of the other musical or live musicals, which is like you're watching it to sort of half hate watch it and hope that something surprises you. Uh, yeah, I just I wonder. I don't think there's all that many good musicals. Like, period. I, clearly, oh they can make good, They can make some TV out of bad musicals, but mm. I don't know. I was thinking about so Rent the other day. Speaking of Vanessa Hudgens. Uh, oh, live Rent. I, I would totally watch Live Rent, and I was also, actually, Katie, you and I took a walk around the park, or around a cemetery over the weekend. Yep. <laughs> and a I was telling you, a hit Brooklyn cemetery. Yeah, I, I was telling you about how I feel like Rent, everyone saw Rent, and uh, and became socially conscious. Like, we didn't overthink <laughs> how diversity and sexuality and all these different things could just play a part in our everyday lives. It was wonderful, and man, maybe we need Rent again. Like, Rent is an outdated musical because of its very specific... You know, moment in time, in place, but come it's on, it's a period rent. piece, like the OJ. It would teach series. kids today so much about the world. Well, there's also a sequence where all the cast members have sex on stage, so it's going to be yeah, very interesting to figure very, out how they did that for it's prime very time. It's under abstract. a sheet, man. <laughs> Contact. They did have to change the lyrics of Grease from like creaming and stuff, but. Uh... I don't, think rent's gonna, yeah, I don't think rent's gonna happen anytime soon. Let's yeah, yeah, but hairspray, <laughs> hairspray is gonna push the button. It's a good time for hairspray, right? Like when we're complaining Hair, about oh, diversity yeah. in Hollywood. Good. Well, the Wiz was really successful. A lot of people because it had a really diverse cast, and people really liked that. And uh, the hairspray's got an even bigger cast and a lot more. Like Queen Latifah could come back, like she was in the Wiz. There's a uh, whoa. I'm psyched for hairspray. Well, right maybe now. they'll switch I, all the yeah. races of hairspray, like. It'll be They'll about switch black all the people races who of don't want to hang out with the white people. It will not make any sense at all. John Waters will direct again. Uh, please join no, me in like... uh, fantasy casting the Hairspray musical. Oh my God. I'm, I'm on Twitter. Booty school dropout. Ah. No graduation day for you. Sorry, that's Your it. Your story sad to tell A teenage ne'er-do-well Most mixed up non-delinquent on the block
This week, the long-gestating Pride and Prejudice and Zombies comes out into theaters. And I am correct in saying this has been in production or in development for a very long time, right? It, it, well, there, it, there was definitely a long time. Natalie now Portman still gets a producer credit on this because she was going to actually star in the film years ago. Um, and I, for people who don't know, this is the this is Seth Graham Smith's kind of debut novel mashup of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice and you know every zombie trope you can imagine. And Seth Graham Smith has kind of like that launched his career. He did maybe one or two. I think he did like a, a Sea Monsters mashup or something. He did Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, and and these movies got him into Hollywood, or these books got him into Hollywood. He wrote the Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter movie. He wrote um, Tim Burton's Dark Shadows. He had a TV show on MTV called The Hard Times of R.J. Berger, and he he's writing a Beetlejuice sequel. Apparently, he's going to write the or he might direct the Flash movie for DC. He might direct the Flash movie. It's insane. Like, and he's never really had a hit, and I think that's what uh, we were gravitating towards. You know, how does Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, which had one moment kind of went viral. A lot of people were buying, I think it's a best-selling book. I mean, a lot of people were talking about it when it came out. And they tried to make this movie for years. Just so many directors. And I think I'm, David O. Russell was going to make this movie at I'm some going point. back. Uh, I wrote about it at first on uh, February 15th, 2009. My God. Um, yeah, so now this movie is going to come out. Seven years ago. God. I, I should stick up for the movie a little bit because I've seen it and I kind of dig it. Um, you know, it has nothing going for it. In terms of visuals, it's not a good zombie movie. It's, but it is a, it's a, a, a clever Pride and Prejudice movie. I think it has more of the Jane Austen in it than the zombie movie. Uh, Lily James who was in Cinderella. is is quite charming in it. As this is like the uh, the good version of oh my god, I'm forgetting Zack Snyder's femme ass kicking movie, Sucker, Sucker Punch. Punch. This is like if Sucker Punch had a little more charm and a little more texture to it because Lily James, you know, she's a she is Elizabeth Bennet, but she also wields swords to chop zombies' heads off. And um, Douglas, or, oh God, Sam Riley plays Mr. Darcy, and he's awesome. Like, Sam Riley is... I've been waiting for him. He's not a, a funny guy, a but he's very funny in this movie because of how sturdy he is, and I, I love their dynamic. I actually really enjoy it. It's a very stiff movie. This guy, Burr Steers, who directed... Charlie St. Cloud is the guy no, who finally made this movie. Like Roger Dodger, did he not? No, that is not no? the same guy. Well, Burst Tears directed something interesting once upon a time. Igby goes down. Igby goes down. I mean, I think oh. I can be forgiven for confusing that with Roger Dodger. No, Roger Dodger is an entirely different movie. That's a Jesse Eisenberg film. That is fair. He also directed Seventeen again, which I'll stand by. Oh my God! Any day of the week and twice on Sunday. So, Katie, what sent the alarms off here? And our mini segments going more than mini, but. Seth Graham Smith just seems to be, I don't know, failing upwards, or this movie's not going to be hit, I can't, I can't imagine. Yeah, the failing upwards was definitely the thing I was thinking about, because I was remembering back when uh, there was this whole huge crazy bidding war for Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, somehow. Um, like back in 2010, I think, like after Pride and Prejudice and Zombies had been an option. And then Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter came out and did nothing. And funnily enough, Benjamin Walker, star of that movie, is also in a movie this weekend, The Choice, a Nicholas Sparks movie. So 
Look at how these <laughs> paths have, have diverged. And like, I just watching this guy, like he had, he had a book turned into a movie that did nothing. He wrote Dark Shadows, which did nothing, but he's, he has wormed his way into <laughs> Hollywood in a way that none of us are capable of understanding from a distance. And it's one of those things that like, we can talk about it all we want, but we're not in those rooms to like watch him and Tim Burton be bros. So just watch, like it, when you see someone like this, just like, inexplicably stick around like even Zack Snyder has like had hits there's a reason that he's still making movies like what how do we explain this like why why can't we get rid of well, this can guy? you can I've, I've got a guess okay. I've got a guess which is that he's bringing in things on time and on budget <laughs> that's always the cliche of uh I mean not well, saying that what you said is cliche really... but like that's also, that's what everybody says well not to play too much to what's happening in the discourse now but I think there's a reason for why we're talking about the things that we're talking about, and uh, I'm sure the fact that he's a white male who was likely friends with Tim Burton, uh, you know, probably got him in the door and kept him there. Yeah, I mean, I think it's key too that whenever we kind of roll our eyes at whatever Hollywood's doing and watching a guy like this succeed despite never really having a hit, part of the part of the entertainment business is being good in a room, just like you're saying, Katie. You know, yeah. like Seth Graham Smith is on Twitter. He's a very funny guy, very nice person. Uh, buddies with a lot of people we know out in LA and he's just he charms the pants off people and I'm sure that's how he got his books made that's how he gets his movies made and that's how Hollywood works it's Did kind of a sad truth Pride and Prejudice and Zombies uh, <laughs> uh, uh, at least so yes I read I was in the bookstore on my way home from Sundance at the airport and I picked up Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and I read the first sentence and I've never been like nah, this is overstating the case but I was deeply appalled and uh, our culture. The first sentence is, it's a, it's a truth universally acknowledged that any zombie with brains is in want of more brains. <laughs> this fucking guy, you know, just went through <laughs> Pride and Prejudice and just re replaced all, like, it's just a, the most idiotic, brainless, ironically. But here's thing. the thing, David. He did it. I didn't it. do it. He I did know. it. But you know what? I'm okay <laughs> not having that money. I'm okay with that not being my legacy. I'm okay with people liking the things they read. Flash forward 40 years from now. Do. David's uh, sense and sensibility crossover with werewolves. No, no, he's got to put something in Carol, oh, right? Yeah, the, with the novel. Carol, but it's aliens. Actually, no, werewolves. Werewolves can be a good metaphor for you know living by night, and I don't know, Ooh. like dark, you know. I'm sure. But that's secret the thing. Yes, vampires, zombies, werewolves—all these things started as metaphor, as as expressions of repressed cultures, and now. Uh, now <laughs> you see fried wretches and zombies and it's just about fucking nothing it's just about a fucking adding a word and selling something in the back of an Urban Outfitters okay Gosh. so should it be called Care Howl or yes. Carool <laughs> I, I like Carool <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was a perfect ending, but I just want to read the section of the Pride and Prejudice and Zombies Wikipedia page. Quirk Books editor Jason Recklock developed the idea for Pride and Prejudice and Zombies after comparing a list of popular fanboy characters like ninjas, pirates, zombies, and monkeys with a list of public domain book titles such as War and Peace, Crime and Punishment, and Wuthering Heights. He then turned the product over to Seth Graham Smith. Wow. This year at Sundance, there was a panel, I believe, to talk about digital versus film that I know Patches at least was at. Correct, Patches? I was at my computer watching it live stream on YouTube. Is that what you mean? 
Excellent. As long as somebody was actually watching it live. <laughs> I just got the echo of the Star Wars related news from it, like I do, because that's the part of the web that vibrates. And uh, uh, Colin Trevorrow said that he's going to shoot episode nine on film because it's a period piece, which would have been fine because... Because uh, it's a period piece? Wait, hold on. That is not exactly Slow what down. he said. I mean, it's in a, a long, uh, that's, long time is, ago, I guess? That is exactly what Wait, he said. Do you have his exact quote? <laughs> From this panel, um, was he making a joke? No, no, no. But it, was, we, it took place a long time ago. Yes, he was. Ma- he was making a joke, right. but like, let, we, I'm that, using that to leverage that my point. Famous Jurassic World sense of humor. Go on, yes. Because <laughs> here's the thing: is I don't, I don't really care when it's like a movie this big, and like if there's a company like Disney that has the capability of allowing a director to shoot on film, then sure. But just the fact that it's like Colin Trevorrow being all like tongue in cheek about it, and like walking into a franchise that two previous directors that I do trust with like you know changes to the Star Wars style or shooting on film he gets to like walk in and like be like I'm also shooting on film because I'm part of this crazy legacy and of course it's a period piece mm-hmm. got me mad because to me it seems ridiculous that you would shoot something like that's a big CGI blockbuster film like Star Wars on like film stock only to just Throw it through this <laughs> digital post-production workflow. David, you can't interrupt by sneezing. Sh- that's very rude. <laughs> that is that is so rude. Uh, but then it's going to be you know put through digital production workflow and post-production workflow, and then put through a digital projector in most of the outlets that it's going to be at. I feel like if the human mind is already being tricked into thinking that it's watching film in those conditions anyway, considering things like you know the. Uh, Millennium Falcon Jakku Chase is a digitally created, uh, you know, desert made from like stock footage that they actually shot with film, but like none of those shots exist on like a reel of stock anywhere. If we could already sort of meld that seamlessly with like a film texture, then why are we taking these steps out to deal with stuff like, uh, you know, stock, uh, being treated before it goes into like a digital post production process or even just, keeping Kodak afloat and in profit because you can with like a Star Wars movie. It it made me really mad because I don't want to think that like there's no reason we've had the conversation about film versus digital and obviously I don't want to say it's always one way or always the other but for these giant CGI blockbusters it just seems it would be like the way you're getting your authenticity in these movies is by like shooting on a real set or having a prop or having your actors act against each other and not like a green ball. It's not with, you know, some sort of texture that you're shooting on and then passing off and then stripping off and applying to a flat digital thing again. It seems like a needless step in a process that might be trying to recapture something more like nostalgia. I don't know how so I, I tweeted these I don't things. know how you can see it that way because well when we were arguing about this in public on twitter you said that design is what and you reiterated it here design is what makes something authentic or makes something you know if you're going to shoot a period piece as long as you have period costumes and period props that is what will will sell it um but i think that's idiotic (laughs) because it's like we we you know michael mann made tried this test you know public enemies was uh, that was a long time ago for digital technology. Sure, but it's one way of saying how important so your film that your Katie film Rich stock. didn't know Channing Tatum's name at the time. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. No, I did. I remember him showing up for a minute. Anyway. But but I think that movie speaks to 
what you choose to shoot on is part of the design. It's part of the aesthetic texture that goes into conveying whatever you want, whether it is realism or whether it's something more heightened. You know, we David and I uh, have very mixed, serious feelings about this movie, Birth of a Nation, that played at Sundance, Nate Parker's movie um, that chronicles uh, Nat Turner's slave rebellion back in the 1800s. And that movie is shot on uh, clearly digital photography. It's all very kind of shallow and soft, and it looks like you went out in the backwoods right now and just shot it because it looks that's what digital photography does you know starting with the red camera it's not uh it's not realistic it's it's something soft and heightened and, and weird it's totally but the detached. problem with that the problem with that approach in this particular movie is that they don't balance it out with anything else that's remotely naturalistic it's still an ed's wick movie in every other respect with the booming score yeah. and the very you know broad emotional moments and it, it doesn't uh, that aesthetic feels like an accident rather than something that was devised for it. But but to say that film has no place in these mega blockbusters that are clearly 80% digital at this point. Well, first off, Star Wars Episode Seven wasn't, right? That's a huge part. They built a lot of sets. They went to yep. a lot of locations. And clearly Episode Nine is probably going to follow suit in a lot of ways. But uh, when we were arguing about this, I, I mentioned Interstellar. Interstellar is a movie with tons of CG accoutrement. And that's, I mean, without film, I don't think you have something as uh, raw and tethered to Earth and its plight and the dust, the grit, the natural grit of, of Earth um, with, without film grain, without having whatever that look is that you're going for, whatever, whatever stock you're pulling. The, 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 I can I can say that digital needs to exist, film needs to exist. I'm curious, Dave, why you think that one has no place in blockbuster filmmaking at this point when it's such an important decision to what you're saying with your movie, with your movie's uh, design. Mm. I just uh, no, I mean, I, yeah, go ahead, Katie. Please. I just like I feel like it's an important decision that you're going to make as a director for how you want your set to run and what you want to do for yourself. But in terms of what your film looks like, I think. It's important, but it's not essential. Like, I'm thinking about The Martian, which is shot digitally, as far as I can tell, and feels as authentic it's to me as Star Wars does in a lot of fun. digitally. Yeah, I mean, I think, the, I think I've said this. Like, I can't see the difference between digital and film the way that I think you can. Well, I don't, I don't think a lot it, of people... Or I don't pay attention to it. So I don't think a lot of people I, can see it, but I think a lot of people feel it, if that <sighs> makes sense. Like, I think you feel the hyper-clarity of the Martian's digital photography and how that feels very modern. In, in fact, it feels futuristic, whereas something like Interstellar or versus Gravity, Gravity also feels futuristic because it's hyper-clean and fluid motions, but Interstellar has a rustic flavor to it, and it should because it starts in a dust bowl. It's completely oh, okay, different. Let me like, make, a, let me make a comparison. It, let me make a comparison and see if I'm following you. So, like, let's say, like, something like high frame rate Hobbit movies. Like, something that innately to the human eye, something looks different, something looks off. So, they strip out the extra frames for the next two Hobbit movies for the majority of the settings. And people seem generally fine with it. If it's like if we're capturing, you know, like up now to 8K digital, we're capturing the inf the same information film is. Why not have it in an environment where you could add or strip away to make it have the feeling that you want? Because it's not like the information is being captured differently photochemically or digitally. 
in terms of if it's going to have to be processed as digital information later. Uh, I just don't think that the mimicry really... I mean, it... Well, I mean, you could process it different. You could process different layers of emulsion or something different, and that's fine. That's a film post-production process, but that's not what something like Star Wars is doing. But Star Wars is doing that. Like, Star Wars does not look like the Hobbit movies. It actually looks more like the shot-on-film Lord of the Rings trilogy, to me. Right, but it went through the exact same digital color grading process well, I do as think, both the digital Hobbit and Listening the film to the, the, uh, the conversation at Sundance... I, my mind drifted towards the, the digital intermediate. And if you uh, were like me as a young lad reading American cinematographer, or as my uh, cinematography professors at NYU would say, uh, cinematography porn, put it down. That's what they would yell at me and say. <laughs> and I was like, no. Anyway. Um, so you've had this problem yes, for a exactly. while. I'm addicted to cinematography porn. Uh, I need to go to rehab. The point is, the digital intermediate is this, you know, this process where you're controlling every aspect of your frames, every scene you can kind of tinker with. And, you know, I, Spielberg really made this famous and with his bleach bypassing and his detailing of all these frames. And you started to see film just enter the digital realm in such a way that the elasticity, I mean, there was no point. You might as well shoot on digital if you're going to go to that length of, the, of manipulation. Um but now you, yeah, and George aren't Lucas all did. Star Wars movies going to go to that length no matter what to add the effects that make the movies possible? Yeah, but don't you see a difference between the hyper clarity of the Star Wars prequels and the films that the, that Star Wars: The Force Awakens? Do you see yes, a visual but that's, difference? A huge, that's design? Yeah, that's a huge difference between CGI sets and real sets and choosing to use an actual well, sunset. In fact, and all in of fact, the Star Wars: The Force elements. Awakens uses had more special effects or CG shots than. Phantom Menace or any yeah, of those. Yeah, they're, I mean, but they're used better. Yeah, well, yes, but it, it, you know, to play devil's advocate, uh, in Katie's defense, the quantity of CG shots does not have much to do with uh, the ways in which they're used. It's not just the quality of them, but also the uh, the fact that, as you said, the CG sets in the prequel trilogy are, were so garish. It's it's not the CG details. Um, but I do think that you know, I I, I think first of all. If the filmmaker is making a creative choice to shoot on film, if they have that available to them and they choose it, then I feel like anything else, you have to wait to see the movie to uh, to have much of a judgment one way or the other. Um, and if you can't see episode seven shot digitally, which you cannot, then you really have no way you of You mean judging. projected digitally? No, you'll see it projected digitally. Oh, oh it yeah, sorry. Shot sorry. Yeah, no, yeah, no, um, I, I, sorry, I know what you mean. You know, and then you see something, and of course, you don't have to work that hard to extrapolate it from the smaller movies. I mean, you see Carol, which was shot on... Uh, 16 millimeter and the world of difference that makes to the texture of the, the screen image. And I think that there's, uh, and I, you've only seen it projected digitally. There, Edward Lockman has a copy of the film on 35 millimeter that, to my knowledge, is not screened publicly anywhere yet. Uh, but if it screens anywhere, David will be there. I have, I have, uh, a few, I, a few secrets. Anyway, uh, there's, <laughs> uh, you know, I, this is, you're talking about it purely in the context of blockbuster movies, but I, I, seeing, you know, Star Wars Episode Seven did not look like The Hateful Eight on 70mm. You didn't have that sort of rickety gate and the, the shaking film. It didn't look like Son of Saul, you know, projected on film. Um, it, but it still had an authenticity to the images, particularly in the sequences on Jakku that really ground the effects in reality. They augment the look of the special effects 
It, I think that when you have digital shooting on... And, like, Roger Deakins or someone like that can shoot the hell out of digital. First of all, it's one guy. <laughs> Second of all... Uh, there will be more. There was, yes. But his, his aesthetic for Spectre, um, or for Sicario, was very particular. Um, and it was not one... He didn't one, shoot Spectre. He shot Skyfall. Not Spectre, sorry. You know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, you, everyone definitely knows what I mean. No one can sorry. <laughs> Not to be the pedant, sorry. No, 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 you're right. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that it adds so much. Uh, I think to compound digital shooting with digital projection, the way that it is now, it does have a very glossy feeling. Um, I definitely, I feel it somehow more acutely at film festivals where we see, like Toronto, for example, where, um, you know, they're just cycling through the DCPs and, and uh, these are 99% of these movies are shot digitally to begin with. And then they just roll them up to the same screen, stretch it, and flick it. And it's just like you can feel the elasticity of the image and not in a positive way. It just feels very sort of plastic and, and gross. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I can't foresee a future where I am ever going to be arguing on the side that it doesn't make a difference. So here's, I think, where I'm coming around to it. Like, you think about different eras of film, and you know you can turn a movie on, a, on TCM and not look at the title or what's on it and know what era it's from because of the lighting or because of the color grading. Like, you see movies from the 40s, and they're very brightly lit. You see movies from the 60s, and they've got kind of this, like, warm color grade that they don't have now. And digital is the aesthetic of our time, and I think you can dislike it and think that it's overly plasticky, but it's just what our movies look like now, and... It's fine with me. Like, that seems well, like so progress to me. It's 2017, and Donald Trump is just the president of our time, and Katie Rich is perfectly fine <laughs> just with it. Just go with That's it. what happened. No, no. I, like, I'm never going to argue they'll that, like... One look back at the firing, smoldering ruins of New York City, and they'll know immediately that it came from 2017. <laughs> but then, <laughs> so why, then why do people have strong opinions that someone would shoot on film? That well, is Well, so, like, I was just going to say, like, I think that... Like, I'm never, never going to argue against the use of film in Carol. Like, I think that does benefit that movie hugely. You can feel it in that. But I think for large movies that are made in this blockbuster scale that are so invested in digital effects anyway, as Dave and I were saying, that that's the currency of the time. That is what modern blockbusters look like. And you can make them warm and feel human in a ton of other ways. But using film instead of digital just feels like something that's more for you, the director, to make yourself feel like you're fucking Stanley Kubrick than wow. actually benefit your movie. Wow. Well, I'm going to say, especially in this specific case of Star Wars Episode Nine. I haven't seen anything in, like, Safety Not Guaranteed or Jurassic World that makes me think, what this guy's missing is a bigger access to film stock. No, I mean, come on. What, what, what this guy's missing is obviously much more crucial than that. But, uh, but I mean, like, we're also going we're gonna to mi- see a mid-ground at least before that because Gareth Edwards is using the Arri Alexia 65 6K as well as 35 millimeters, so it's going to be mixed, but there's going to be a lot of He's digital in Rogue One. just alternating shots? How is that working? Uh, he's using the Alexia 65 with the Hateful Eight lenses. So it's possible so that it's, shooting a, digital it's going to be a... Classic 70 millimeter panoramic, like Yeah, panoramic style lenses. lenses. Okay. Yeah, so uh, that's it's going to be a crazy war movie looking thing that's going to look different from the saga movies uh, because they're he's using, I think, the most digital that any Star Wars director is committed to using yet. Yeah, is Ryan Johnson all in film? Oh, yeah. Uh, he, he wanted to shoot entirely, I think, in 65 millimeter, and they talked him down to just some key scenes in 65 millimeter, from what I remember. Interesting. But using yeah, all 35 film. with the rest of them. 
Yeah, he's using 35 for I mean, the thing is, I, I, majority. I keep going back to, you know, you guys are dismissing film because it's like, why just not shoot a digital? We can't tell. But I'm like, not, I'm, not, I'm not outright dismissing film. I know. I, I'm just interested in, do you think that film works its magic on you without you recognizing that it's on film? That's the argument that I have trouble hearing. Like, I could take a logical argument about using film stock or using digital with, you know, people who, you know, have been to film school or have worked with one of the models. When it comes down to, like, if I'm sitting in a room and watching something on film and you're sitting in a room and watching something on film and you have a feeling that comes with that, I don't know if I could separate that from the fact that it's a physical product that was, like, processed and I'm watching it. It's not like some sort of magic fairy dust exists for me that makes something have texture or soul. Like that, those aren't filmmaking terms for but, me. No, I mean neither. Why... Like, there's no magic for me in like watching a film. I mean, I understand the sounds of it. Like I've used a 16 millimeter projector. I know how it works. But there's no. But is there magic for you in you know Captain America: The Winter Soldier? I mean. The movie's fine. There's magic for me in watching Star Wars digitally projected. There's not magic digitally projected. There's magic for me in The Martian. Like, I, there's lots of movies filmed digitally that I love. Like, sure. Like, seeing The Avengers for the first time was a blast. Like, like that the movie-going experience for me has nothing to do with with, fil- look. with physical film. No, not, not with look, but with, like, whether or not something is going to have that captivating effect on me has nothing to do with what it was filmed on. I will say this. Colin Trevorrow is a klutz, and his foot <laughs> is constantly in his mouth. He, and during the Sundance panel, he talked about how he would be using film to the end of his career, and he, if the Kodak factory in Rochester, New York, went out of business, he would be standing there taking selfies in front of the factory because he would be there until the dying day. Um, what a dumb Kind of a nincompoop, unfortunately. Uh. And I do think that – so he shot Jurassic World on film, and it looks worse because Par- – Partially on film. I think mostly on film. But, like, the special effects, all the dinosaurs and stuff, are CG. Um, and they look really bad. They don't look integrated into the film, uh, and it, it's a disconnect because I think they couldn't match the look of 35 to his CG dinosaurs, and he'll, you know, harp and harp and harp about uh, the practical brachiosaurus or whatever that they built for one shot, one shot. Uh, it's so sad. But so that was a backfire. That was film working against a blockbuster, um, I just don't see I don't see a reason why you would roll your eyes when a director wants to shoot film. Clearly there's a reason Trevorrow might be motivated by sitting next to Christopher Nolan and dreaming and imagining himself as, as Christopher Nolan and wanting to shoot films like his peers or his is uh, the people above him like Spielberg or something. Um, but Christopher mm-hmm. Nolan, when he's like, I want to shoot on film and I have a reason, I believe him. I believe sure, I mean, Christopher right. Nolan no, has no, no, that's entirely... he can do really fascinating things with film in the blockbuster. So how are people supposed to prove that they can? If by no one using, believes in I don't know, like by making Jurassic don't World get tossed and into the middle and making of... it good. Oh, okay. Well, that's fair. <laughs> don't get tossed into the middle of a like a like a blockbuster that you can't handle and then like mistake providence yeah, for also talent. Film, you know, you'll hear this from filmmakers all the time. Film has a way of inserting an urgency into the filmmaking process that can make the movies better. I'm not saying that um, choosing different takes or having a different energy on Jurassic World would have fixed an atrocious script and an incompetent director, but I do think that there are uh, intangibles to film that you can't just attribute to the chemical process that um, 
You know, so many eyes flying. Oh, sure. Level. But I mean, then it, go- it goes the other way, too. Like James Gunn was saying, because he's shooting Guardians of the Galaxy 2 digitally, that he wanted to do Guardians of the Galaxy 1 digitally because he wanted to just, like, shoot takes of people wandering around the ship for, like, an hour and not have to worry about well, no wonder doing Guardians that sort of, the of thing. Galaxy was garbage. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, if you want yeah. to, it can, especially for comedies, if you want to do a million different takes and all of your lines are as unfunny as they were in Guardians of the Galaxy and you have a lot of <laughs> video to burn, then, uh, yeah, that helps. But also these huge movies, yeah. like a lot of Judd Apatow movies that are, you know, sloppy and unfocused, like they're shot on film. He just has the budget to keep shooting as long as he wants. Yeah, where he's the kind good. of guy who might benefit from the uh, infinite shooting capacity of digital. Film. It seems it seems weird to me that they're letting Colin Trevorrow do this because it's no, the stop exact there. opposite just thing. It's the exact opposite thing they were kicking themselves for letting Gore Verbinski do with the Pirates trilogy, but they're just letting Colin, Colin, Colin Trevorrow Jesus. do it again. He's not half as talented as Gore Verbinski Yeah, was. watching him, I just can't help but think of the guys in film school who like really wanted to shoot their theses on 35 just because like they had the money to do it and figured it would make But the thing is, awesome. like, yeah, the, guys the guys assholes. in film school, that's, yeah. when you, that's when you should do it. That's when you should do it, though. That's when they should do it. When your parents are willing to p- fork out 15 grand for your student film. Exactly. I, two things to wrap up here. One, Colin Trevorrow said he wanted to shoot real plates of space for his Star Wars film. Which is That's incredible. Which ridiculous. He should, be, he should go to jail or something. <laughs> he should go to space. He should go to space jail. He should go to <laughs> go to guy lockout space or whatever jail. it's called. Lockdown. Lockout. Um, yeah, that's absurd. Katie, you and I we were at the final show or the final night of the Ziegfeld Theater here in New York, and we saw Star Wars for my, this was my fourth time. It was awesome. Uh, it was great. Don't but regrets. I was looking, uh, I, that day was when uh, the Sundance talk was, and I'm looking at the space vistas, and I'm like, this does not need to be more realistic than this. It's space. <laughs> We've never been there. Make it look like whatever you want it to look yeah, like. Yeah, the CG artists. We've never just, been like, to any of black, these places. They filled the canvas with the paint bucket in MS Paint and speckled some white dust in there. That, that works. That's totally fine. <laughs> realistic enough. <laughs> or you could just get a sheet. And backlight it and poke some poke holes, some in, holes it. in it. Yeah. I think uh, so, the end point here is really, I think Dave and Katie, your complaint here is that shooting 35 is kind of silly, and maybe shooting 70 millimeter is kind of silly at this point. And I, I could agree with you because when we talk about Carol and the look of that, that is 16 millimeter, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. that is what great film looks like today. That is the drawing a line in the sand. If you want to shoot film. If Colin Trevorrow loves film so much, he should shoot Star Wars 9 or whatever in on 16 millimeter. That shit looks gorgeous. Oh my god, I would love I would love episode 9 to be in a 4/3 aspect ratio. <laughs> I would if, not. I mean that would just thrill me to nothing. I think Rogue One on 16 that could be fun just for the grittiness or the you know the scrappiness. There you go. That, that looks that's what people dream of when they I'll think of like 35. My, my weird beefs about the 4/3 aspect ratio for another episode. <laughs> I mean, I just think of like all the '90s comedies that were like you make the first Wives Club on 35. Does that make that movie more inherently beautiful? No. Actually, I think it does. Was on 35. What? The first Wives Club was shot on 35. I know. That's what I'm saying. Like there are lots of gorgeous. I watched okay. that today. <laughs> all right. You, you all right. That. No, no. <laughs> How to be sick. This, actually, this is really a perfect did. point. This is a perfect point because uh, uh, a year ago almost, I was sitting at the Alma Draft House in Yonkers, New York, watching Sudden Death, the Peter Himes, Jean-Claude Van Damme, um, terror, it's Die Hard in a Hockey Rink. Yeah. It's incredible. And 
I was watching that film, and I had seen it on cable a ton. Um, this movie is very silly. It's, yeah, Die Hard riff with Jean-Claude. That movie looked like a fucking Christopher Nolan movie on the big screen. Yeah. On film. It's shot on film. It, and actually, it was shot on 70 millimeter, and it looks fucking insane. I'm like, Peter Himes is right up there with Nolan as one of the greatest well, actors of all time. Yeah. It Peter looks Himes incredible. is pretty great, actually. What? Uh, as this, Peter Himes is pretty great, as is his son. Um, Who's but- his son? John Himes, who's done uh, Universal Soldier, the, like crazy oh, Universal Soldier oh, for yeah. a few years ago. Uh, it's absolutely nuts. Um, Sun Death is amazing. Yeah, you're absolutely that's All right. The, I watched yeah. Air Force One on cable yesterday. That movie would look just as good on digital. I rest my case. Nope. That's 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 where you're wrong. No. <laughs> yeah. You got If you watch Air Force I mean, One in the theater, once you see on film it on film, I mean, I saw it on projected on well, film in a theater as a kid. I don't we remember don't, anything about exactly. that part of it. We don't necessarily need to retroactively doing it. I'm saying, like, if it's not Carol, and if you don't know exactly why you're doing it, because you have, like, an awesome design reason to have, like, a certain texture, then don't so do it. Shoot in digital. closing, go see Carol. <laughs> Actually, in closing, I'm here to announce that I'm shooting Carol on 35. Hey! Boo! I'm not doing your digital werewolves anymore, Patches. <laughs> Oh man, the Carol budget really just skyrocketed now that Dave won't do it. That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We will be back on Friday to talk about Hail Caesar, the Coen Brothers movie about Hollywood that has Channing Tatum dancing in a sailor suit for, I've been told, 45 minutes. So I'm pretty excited about that. But not Hail Caesar, our mashup of Hail Caesar and Devils. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches. I'm the entertainment editor of Thrillist. And I am on Twitter, which is apparently going under soon, so we won't be on Twitter for very long. But I am on Joy Twitter. Well last. <laughs> at Mr. Patches. And we have a website, fightingthewarroom.com, where you can share episodes, you can leave comments, or you can make suggestions of our next mashup book that's going to make us all millionaires. Uh, I'm David Ehrlich. I am a staff writer at Rolling Stone, and I do some reviews for Slate. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich. You can also find me, if you're in Florida, next Thursday night, talking about Carol at my Abbey Cinema Tech with Todd Haynes producer Christine Vachon. What? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, if you're anywhere in the Miami area, please go get your tickets on the Miami Cinema Tech website. Come on down. Uh, we're going to be talking about all of killer, the killer films Todd Haynes productions so not just carol we're, we're building to carol climactically um and then it'll be a carol screening in the next night which i will also be attending um anyway uh you can find all of us together on the internet at fighting in the war room on facebook facebook it does a body good yeah <laughs> yeah people have been finding us on there and opinionating it's been really fun uh, I'm Dave Gonzalez, spell my first name DA7E, that's also my Twitter handle, I write for latino-review.com and geek.com. I also am pulling together the little Fighting in the War Room podcast family. Uh, we have a bye week this week where I'm tinkering around with something at fightinginthewarroom.com slash Cora, but don't look too early or you might not see anything there. Uh, but next week we'll be back with a whole new thought bubble because it's Deadpool week. So Joanna Robinson and I will be talking about that. And if we're going to be reading Marvel comic books because their CEO donated to Donald Trump. Oh, God. Uh, I am uh, Katie Rich. I promise not to talk to you about anybody who donated to Donald Trump or anything else political. 
Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And we're all on Twitter for now, at least as long as it lasts, at F-I-T-W-R, where we're talking to each other and you, and you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of Hail Caesar, cast a famous Hollywood person to play a famous Hollywood person of the past in a comedy. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you on Friday. Graduation! Yeah! Maybe we'll never see each other again!